Welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I am here with Susan. Hey, Susan. Hey, Guthrie. Uh, and I'm going to let you take uh, over and talk about our guest today, huh? Yeah, we have a special guest. We have Caroline Jarrett. And Caroline is from the UK. And she is uh, a forms specialist. She advises organizations, companies, on how to make forms easier to fill out and how to make them more effective and how to use them in the in your organization and at your website and so on. And she's also uh, a survey, I'm going to say a survey design expert, and she has a new book out called Surveys That Work. Uh, it's, it's a really fun and amazing book, and I definitely want to want to talk about the uh, survey book. So welcome to our podcast, Caroline. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to this so much. So Caroline Guthrie, um, I don't know how much you know. You know that Caroline and I know each other. Sometimes we have people on the podcast that uh, we don't know very well. We just know a little bit. We've never met in person. Yeah, maybe I read their book and I wanted to have them on. But in this case, Caroline and I know each other. We we go back quite a ways. I don't, let's see. No, I do, do no, I don't remember. Do you know when we first met, Caroline? I don't remember. I think it might have been um, on a previous version of your podcast where you, we were both going to a Kai conference that was held in Vancouver. Um, oh, you're right. Yeah. It was the Kai conference in Vancouver, and it was, it was that a was a time long ago. time ago. It was a, a great conference. Ago. Yeah, it was big. I mean, I think it had some thousands of people there, and yeah. I very clearly recall that we, we met in a hotel room, and we talked about this and that, and it was a load of fun. Um, yeah. I cannot remember when it was, but it must have been, put it like this, it was more likely to be 15 years ago than 10. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree with you. And then we, we I, the one I do, yeah, you're right. I, I vaguely remember that. The one I remember much more clearly is when we both spoke at the um, conference in Lisbon, Portugal. Oh, yeah, UXLX. That's a, such a great fun conference. Um, I've just, I've had the opportunity to go to it, I think, twice now, and they were both great experiences. So, um, really heartily recommend that to anyone who's oh, I to go to a great conference in a fantastic location. Yeah, I agree with you. And I've only been once, and that 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 was when you were we were both speakers there, and we kind of met up again. And that was uh, the the one I was at was the first year of the conference. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was yeah, good. it's such a great conference, and we had so much fun on that trip. And then after that. Uh, I, we met again. You uh, uh, showed me around the countryside in the UK, near where you live. Um, I believe we ended up spending uh, a weekend trip in France. So we go back a ways. Lots of conferences yeah. we met at, UXPA conferences. Uh, I but I don't get to see you enough, so I look no. forward to. Yeah, uh, that's that's only when, because only you guys only hang out when you're on vacation. No, that wasn't. Most of this is work. No, I, it was all work. Yeah, okay, was yes. All work. So so there was not there was nothing there was no fun visits you did in 
Portugal. You no, didn't eat no, pastries. No. no, Caroline and I, we just never very, had fun together. Very, very serious. No, when we are together, it is serious heads down. No, mm. obviously, Guthrie. And, and, and Guthrie, there is no way I'm ever going to tell you how many of uh, those special um, <laughs> tarts do they have in this patisserie in Lisbon called the Belém Patisserie, and they have a special kind of little custard tart called the Pastache de Belém. And, and no way could I ever divulge how many of them we ate because it was constant work. Ah, but yes. to be honest, it was constant work because we, we our idea of fun is chatting about user experience topics, isn't it, Susan? Yeah, I have to say, Gussie, our idea of fun is talking about forms and survey. I mean, we we probably would seem very boring to everyone else, but to us, it's like great fun. You know, and it's, we're, we're so nerdy. Um, but I remember, Caroline, we were at a, a UXPA conference, and I sat in on your a talk you gave on... Uh, I actually now I can't remember was it a talk on forms or was it a talk on surveys or both I think it was on surveys and I it was such a great talk I we all encounter surveys right you I don't think you can be on the internet doing anything and not run into a survey and I'm one of those people that I just I can't stand it, you know. I get these surveys, and and the way the question is worded, and I can't answer the question because there isn't a choice that you know matches what I want to say, and uh, you know there's, there's like a yes and a no, and if if it's maybe or don't know, I can't answer, and then I can't. It's a required question, and I can't go on, and I end up getting very frustrated. And I sometimes end up like contacting them and sending them emails and telling them that they need to hire Caroline Jarrett as a survey expert and get some help on their surveys. It, but I think I think you are similar to me in that this stuff drives you crazy. Yeah, I mean, I I um, no longer one of the joys of actually getting my book out and published is that I no longer have to systematically collect screenshots of every survey that I do. Which have I've you been, been, did you do that before? Oh, for decades, yeah. I, did. I mean, for years and years and years, I I collected everything. And um, way, a few years ago, five or six years ago, I actually made sure, I mean, I, I've been sporadic. I mean, I don't do every single one. I, I probably have been collecting about three quarters. But there was one month, one August, where not only did I systematically try to collect every single one, no matter how trivial and how annoying, I collected every invitation, every screenshot, every page of every survey that I got in that month. But I also enlisted the help of four friends um, <laughs> to collect them for me over the month. And that was very informative because it helped me. None of them are user experience people at all. Um, they're completely a range of people. One person is a travel journalist. Um, another one is a lawyer. Uh, another friend um, is a retired person who used to work with uh, in a school for kids with um, disabilities. And another one is a yoga teacher. So a very 
quite a range of people and they all very patiently collected every survey invitation during August. And it, it led me to understand a few things about how people outside of UX uh, respond to surveys. But the saddest, the saddest uh, of them was that um, during the course of that month, I saw one organization, one of our telecoms providers, systematically chain train my friend uh the retired friend that organization trained her to never respond to a survey invitation again from them and she's the most nicest person you could wish to meet absolutely delightful but even her patience was tried beyond measure you know she started the month with a little bit of a problem with her telecom supplier and she responded to their first invitation because she thought that perhaps that was a polite thing to do and maybe they would pay more attention. And then the next time the incident wasn't solved and she was a bit more grumpy about the, you know, the survey invitation. By the third time, she's like, never doing it again. You know, and I, all of these surveys that are being sent out so unthinkingly to people, that was the most dramatic example where I saw someone completely lose goodwill to organization over the course of the month. But just survey, so, you know, all of these invitation, invitation, invitation is just training us all to ignore the invitations. It's thoughtless, it's stupid, and it's ruining the whole method for everybody, you know? Exactly. So, so, well, we're, we need to do something about this. We need to send far fewer surveys and far more thoughtful and stop collecting the data that the answer to will you be are you willing to respond to this survey for us? The answer to that is no. So don't ask that question anymore, people. Just don't ask it. Try making your first question something more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I just it's I don't understand. Uh, really, I don't understand. Although I guess I should, um, because I'm I'm in the field of user experience and and I know how these things happen. But it's very hard for me to understand why uh, large organizations who do a lot of surveys can just be so uh, blind to all of you know how a poorly designed survey can harm them. And and how they can keep sending out surveys that just simple, I guess they're not simple, but you know, to me it's like, why did you word the question that way, or why do you have those responses, or why do you have it laid out on the page, or why is it a thirteen-page survey? You know, just all the things that don't do that, and yet they continually do it. All right, so I figured out my role in this podcast. What? So you guys are the um, benevolent survey uh, uh, <laughs> side, and then I get—I'll be the 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 cynic side of surveys, and it'll be great. Wait so, a minute! I thought we were the cynics. No, you guys love surveys. You're kidding me! Kidding me! Well, you're talking about it. <laughs> right? Right? You gotta. We love talking about surveys. We don't like filling okay. them out. Oh no! You love no no no. You like uh, good surveys. You like you you like if the, if you run across a good survey, I bet your heart just skips a beat and you just 
you're you you swoon with um, appreciation for the. So Guthrie, you're saying there is no good survey. No, oh no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying. Well, that what at are all. you saying? I'm How just you saying you guys are. I, not to say that you you you're not harsh critics. Critics, I'm sure you're incredibly harsh, but you uh, you have a. Um, uh, I don't know, a refined survey palette. You're sort of in the culture of <laughs> of, of surveys. You're the you're the, the Soma. <laughs> well, I don't think that's at all fair, Guthrie. I'm okay. going to kick back on that one because I am definitely a survey skeptic. You know, I, I, um, I'm not someone who reaches for a survey very often. It's not a method that I would turn to in the first instance. Um, I would probably say I took people out of surveys as far more often than I would do one. Mm. But I think um, I just put in a, a, a proposal, which I'm, I'm pleased to say was accepted for the Service Design in Government conference in September. And I have to say, I heartily recommend that conference to you uh, even more because um, it was a great conference when it was in person. But then, of course, because of recent events, this year it's going to be a virtual conference, so it's something that's much more easy to attend for um, people who don't happen to be near London. Uh, but the Service Design in Government conference is also a real favourite. But I put in a proposal there to talk about what I what I call it is how to improve the inevitable survey. You know that we can all be survey skeptics for sure. Um, You've elected yourself as the most skeptical survey person, Guthrie, but mm -hmm. I can assure you that me and Sir Susan are not far behind. So but the fact is that we often work in organizations where somebody, or we work with organizations as consultants, or we're permanent staff in an organization, and someone will say, we need to do some research, let's do a survey. Because to many people who are not up to their eyebrows in user experience, uh, they think that research and surveys are the same thing. So part of my book is giving our colleagues in user experience, or indeed not in user experience, market research, or who've never even heard of either of those two things, some ammunition to say, okay, if we're going to do a survey, let's make it a good one. Or if we're going to do some research, let's have some arguments for why we might choose to do that research as a survey or something else, or even more, one of the things I urge people to do in my book a lot is to think of doing some interviews before doing the survey, because without a doubt, in my mind, choosing to do some mixed methods can give you much more power than just saying, oh, we have to only do interviews or, oh, we only need to do usability testing or, you know, we'll pin everything on our web analytics. If we can mix those methods up a bit and get the best from all of them, it's so much more powerful. I think that's really, uh, yeah, I think that's fantastic. The idea that uh, uh, that when people think user research, they just assume a survey. Um, I, I, I think that's a, a great insight. But when clearly there are, you would, you would say, maybe not the best design surveys out there or surveys that are confusing to the end user. I think it's safe to assume. Yeah. I, I think one of I put this in my book as a as, as a, a point really because one of the things that is one of the paradoxes is uh, of surveys is that well-designed surveys go to the smallest possible sample that's been carefully designed to be as small as possible but enough to get mm. the good results. So your chances of seeing a really good survey are very small 
because they've chosen a small sample so the chances of you being in that sample is also very small whereas badly designed surveys get burst out to everybody in sight so your chances of seeing a bad one are excellent okay mm. so that's one of the reasons why i fully accept guthrie you've never seen a good survey and that is the reason why it's not that there aren't any good ones out there it's that the sampling strategy of a good survey will mean that you almost never get one you're very rarely and when you do get one you can be surprised and delighted so the i one of my thoughts and i i'm curious this is a question for both of you when when survey data comes in you know one of one of the thoughts is the surveys are not designed to get good data from people the surveys are designed to make certain people in an organization look good or not and if and if the data is coming in we'll just say like a net promoter score that shows they're doing well regardless or not of the survey or like the accuracy of the data doesn't matter the it's just whether the data coming in is good or not and if it's good they're like the survey was a success look how you know we did the survey people really like us and then everyone sort of pats each other in a circle on the back and they move on does that sound accurate to you or does that sound like a fallacy Was that a question for me or Susan? It was a, It was mostly a rambling statement that I will turn <laughs> into a question that both of you can muse on. <laughs> well, I'll go first, and then Caroline, you can see what you want to add. Um, I I recently had a situation with a client who had a survey that I because of someone else was asked to look at and give my opinion on and when we dug into it it was exactly what you said Guthrie the whole purpose of the survey was to make sure that uh, you know there would be a number that would come back and make this part of the organization look good they really didn't care that much about changing anything as a result of the information they got. They just felt like they needed to do this so they could continually look at a number that would say they're doing okay, whether that was really accurate or not. So I, I think this happens a lot, what you said, Guthrie. I think a lot of times a survey is designed not because we really want data that will help us move forward. And then maybe, I, I mean, this is the extremely cynical view, and maybe I'm doing a disservice to a lot of organizations out there, and I apologize if I am. But I think there's at least some some of that that goes on. Yes, and um, I think both of those uh, things uh, seem to be undoubtedly true to me. I mean, one of the um, problems has been the um, net promoter score, you know, the idea that you only need one number to run the business and then people take that question. So just as a reminder to people who are not 
quite as into it as I am. A net promoter score is this question that you get, would you recommend this brand, you know, to a friend or colleague? And you have to answer from zero at one end to 10 at the other. And then uh, there's a way of calculating your net promoter score. Um, and the question has become detached from its method, really, that I think there can be some value in doing net promoter correctly, which is if you're a brand where recommending to a friend or family member or colleague actually makes any sense, then doing a occasional, you know, quarterly small snapshot of net promoter and using that as part of the data that help you to investigate what your customer service and brand offering is like isn't wholly a bad idea. I mean, it, it's it's not uh, as awful as what we mostly see. However, having said that, what we see is is the sort of blast that Guthrie is about, where um, people have turned NPS, Net Promoter Score, into sort of vanity metric, where they can boast to people, oh, you know, our Net Promoter is consistently at 98% or whatever it is. And they're not actually interested in what's the work we have to do to make sure that our processes, our customer service, our real overall brand offering in terms of everything we do that creates that brand. They're not really interested in that. They're just interested in, oh, I got this number, but, but, but I'm just going to boast about it. And then it becomes another vanity metric that they're exploiting the goodwill of customers. Um, they're not interested, as you said, Susan, in actually moving the business forward. They don't want to do any hard work. They just want to pat each other on the back about it. Um, so it, it's really become a problematic um, thing that to uh, recommend to a friend. Um, and um, I say to, you know, I say in my book, um, you know, if, if you really do need to use that sort of question, then go and read the original book by Fred Reichelt, who's the chap who started Net Promoter, because if you do it according to his method, it's not not as bad as it seems. But if you're doing it in the way I'm afraid I have seen, which is more recently I've seen, you know, poor people who who say, oh, you must give us a 10 on my Net Promoter, otherwise I'm at risk of being fired. You've completely undermined the whole thing and, and created a farce. You know, it's just a vanity metric that you're using to punish people. It's not actually looking at the brand as a whole. I, so, I think what, yeah, I, I think one of the things that that bothers me also is that I think the whole net promoter score has bled over into uh, the idea that I'm not, you know, there are parts of the, an organization that aren't doing the net promoter score. And yet there's this idea of all I have to do is ask one question, you know, about customer service, about, you know, it's not about the brand, but it's about, but I just need this one question and get this one score. And that's all I have to do. I think that it, it promotes this mindset of using surveys just, again, just to, get one score and one grade and and the you know there there's nothing wrong with that necessarily but I think it goes back to your mindset I think I can I'm I wear such a user research hat that I tend and and this might not be a good thing but I tend 
to to look at why someone wants to do a survey and and have the point of view of oh let's actually learn something that is useful that allows us to take action and when you ask these one question you know uh, questions in the survey you're that's a different goal you're not trying to get data to help you make a decision about how to move forward or what to do next. So I think that that's probably why I have an inherent dislike of an NPS type question. Yeah. I mean, I, I should just say, I really like NPS as an economist. I think having one number that summarizes like an entire brand and if people are excited about it, I think it's really cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can A-B test a survey and you just keep sending the questions out until you, as you watch your score go up. But that, that that's not, you know, I don't know what that helps in, in any capacity because you're, you're not actually making the product better. You're just getting, you know, you're prepping people to get better responses. Um, I don't know if anyone's actually A-B testing surveys, but maybe they're doing it uh, um, unconsciously. Caroline, well, or do people A-B test surveys? Just to try to get higher numbers? Oh, or just to get yeah, a better I mean, survey. People do all sorts of things with, with A-B tests. You know, I mean, one of the, if we want to stray off into the joys of A-B testing, one of the things that we then get into the whole challenge of statistical significance of A-B testing. So, you know, I have genuinely heard people say things like, well, we leave the test running until we achieve statistical significance, which is enough to make anyone who's got any sort of props and statistics actually fall off their chair because that is so totally not the way you do proper statistics. The way to do proper statistical testing is to decide in advance what effect size you consider to be statistic statistically sensible so in my book I talk about the difference between statistically significant uh, and significant in practice so you have to say okay the difference between this a and this b is significant in what is the difference that makes a practical significance to our business so is it are we an enormous internet presence where 0.001% difference in an and purchasing power it actually means millions of dollars or are we an ordinary sort of business or corporation that we might work with that well you know what you need to make ten dollars difference in purchasing power between a and b for it to make any difference you say well, okay what is an effect size that you're looking for and then you have to calculate what sample you need to expose that effect size and then you have to run the test for that sample and then you have to see whether you were able to prove or disprove a hypothesis and then you can make a decision. But you can't just eventually the way statistical significance works, eventually you'll need you'll achieve significance on anything if you just let it run until two tiny little numbers are just slightly different enough. And you've got just enough of a massive, massive sample to make it look like there's actually some difference. But you've not. You've just broken the method. So A-B testing is problematic in itself because people just say, oh, we're just going to let it run. No, 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 no. If you're doing that, you just don't understand what's going on. Um, but in your other question was, have I seen people take, OK, this is a customer satisfaction survey, which I'm going to call A, which uses NPS. This is customer satisfaction survey B, 
which asks a more interesting question. Let's run them and see if we get actual useful results over a sample. Well, you know, what is the effect I'm measuring there? What, why would that make sense to run as an A-B test? It, it, the effect I'd be looking at is, can I make a more useful decision on, would you recommend this brand to a friend, than the other question, uh, which might be, um, you know, did you prefer our new offer Snuggleback to our different thing Banana? You say, well, there isn't an effect to look for there. I, either the answer to that question is useful or it isn't. You know, just sit in a meeting and make that decision. You don't have to bombard customers with two different surveys for ages in order to find out whether it's significant in practice. So it's a sort of misapplication of the method. You haven't got an effect there to look for. Did any of that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I, I think so. Hey, let's can can we turn for a minute and talk about the book itself? Because sure. I love this book. I do. Oh, well, first of all, nice. I, I mean it, and I want to I want to talk about why and and how how I've been using it and so on. But before I do that, I do want to mention, I love the forms book you wrote. Can you give us the title of the forms book? It's called Forms That Work. And my survey book is called Surveys That Work. Do we have a pattern? <laughs> no, because there's never going to be another one. There's forms that work oh, and there's surveys know, that work. Caroline, there Finish. <laughs> so first of all, for any of you that have not read Forms That Work, that is also a really great book. I've used that many times. I've, I I uh, recommend that to my clients many times. Um, Caroline, one of the things about both of your books, the Forms That Work and Surveys That Work books, you know, both forms and surveys are these in some ways, they're these small things, right? They're, uh, I, I know they're not really, but if you think about in the world of design, in the world of user experience, you know, we've all worked, I'm sure you have too, worked on apps and software and it's really complicated. And, you know, there's these complicated workflows you're trying to design screens for. And forms and surveys, uh, in some ways, we tend to think of them as not being that way. You know, we tend to think, oh, well, that's that's easy. That's simple. But they're everywhere and they're critical. And and because they seem simple, I think they don't always get the attention to detail that that they could or they should, because you can put together a form or a survey without really knowing what you're doing and it exists and it's out there and people are filling it in and people are responding. So uh, to me, it's one of those parts of design and user experience that is probably gets abused and, and poorly designed the most and they're so they're everywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's interesting to me that that's where, and I don't know how much of your work, I know a lot of your work has focused on forms and, and you know, now it sounds like 
some of it has been focused on surveys. I don't know how much of your work is forms and surveys rather than, oh, I do some forms, I do some surveys, but then I also do these complicated software and apps. Like, do you mainly concentrate on these, quote, simple things, forms and surveys in your work? I um just the other day on my website, um, I, I got permission from Tim Paul, who's head of interaction design at the government digital service in the UK. And he's also uh, the product owner for the government digital service um, design system. And he had a thought for the day of the relationship between forms and services. Um, and I, I, he very sweetly gave me permission to post it on my website because he just threw it on Twitter and a lot of people responded to it. And I thought, you know what, Tim, I think that diagram is going to appear in many presentations and it would be handy to have it somewhere kind of a bit more permanent because it can be a little bit bit of a faff trying to track down. Oh, I saw that great diagram on Twitter. Where's it gone? So he said, yeah, I could put it on my website and and I'll picture the diagram to you. It, it, it's it's like a box with a line maybe um, near the top. So you see a box with a line running across and at the top of the box is uh, the outside world and, and the nine tenths of the box below the line is the organization. And then he has like a mountain range where the little peaks are peeking out um, above the line for the, for the service, the, the uh, outside the organization. And the little peaky bits that are appearing above the line are colored red and they're the form. So you see these little tips and you think, oh, they're easy. They're just the little red tips on the thing. And then underneath, you see this massive craggy mountain range of complications in my mind. I mean, that's my interpretation of the diagram. And within the organization, you've got the service. You've got the whole thing where the forms are just like the little outcrops you can see. And in fact, Many organizations treat those little pinnacles, the little outcrops as being pretty simple. You know, anyone can design a form. Anyone can whip up a form. Why do we care about it? But in fact, the forms are the only bit of your organization that people have to interact with. They're the most crucial part. You know, so I'll see people doing all sorts of investigations on their web or their app of, you know, the branding of it and... Um, all sorts of pages where they describe stuff. And then the only bit of their website or the only bit of their interaction with their organization that's actually compulsory is the form and they don't bother designing that. But that's the bit that's compulsory. It's inexplicable to me. Why don't you give the bit that's actually compulsory more care and attention than all the bit that's optional? You know, why do you just ignore this vital piece? So it's always been a complete mystery to me why um, other people don't take, I, mean, I don't expect anybody to take as much interest in forms as I do, obviously, but just a little bit of interest in them would be a good idea. Um, yeah. You know, and, and it's kind of not quite so bad in surveys because people do understand that a survey, that is something that has to be put together in a thoughtful sort of way. So they're not completely ignored. Um, but um yeah, I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. And and I say to people, you know, one of the w ways I can tell whether I'm talking to a normal person in everyday life or I'm talking to a budget holder is when I talk to a normal person in everyday life and I say, um, 
I don't actually describe myself as a form specialist, Susan. I describe myself as the form specialist because I haven't <laughs> found anyone else. Um, if anyone else thinks that they're a form specialist too, then please come and tell me because I'd be so happy to meet you. But it's like I say to people, I'm the form specialist and I help organisations make forms easy to fill in. And they say, oh, that's cool. You'll never be out of work. Well done. And they immediately get it. You know, normal people totally understand my work. And when I say to a budget holder, you know, I'm the form specialist. I help make forms easy to use. And and by the way, I can save you millions. They're like blank. They just go blank. You know, I know we're not giving you any money for that. Okay, <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get why budget holders have the bit of their brain that understands that bad forms are a bad thing. I don't understand why you have to have that bit of brain surgically removed when you get any budget. But obviously, <laughs> well, you do. Yeah, I think you need like a disaster. I had I had a client. This was so many years ago. Um, totally uninterested though in doing any kind of user experience that term wasn't even around back then or usability work or anything on their forms until until because of a poorly designed form uh, a, a real estate appraiser uh, filled in the wrong amount for the appraisal of a very large commercial property and the company lost seven million dollars in a flash and right and suddenly they were very interested in fixing that form. It was one form. One right. form. Right, and right, right. So that that was a big, you know, then they got very interested. But it's like they had to have a disaster for them to realize, you know, how important that form was. Well, All right. there's another story I love to tell. I'm just yeah. going to tell the story anyway. And that was I was working with them. A big insurance company in Canada and this big insurance company somehow came to me and said we've got some problems on these life insurance forms and I said well okay let's have a look at them and they the biggest problem was an area of the form I said well where are the biggest problems and they said it's it's in this area called designated beneficiary uh designated beneficiary I said okay so I looked at the form and I said well why don't you try putting instead of calling this designated beneficiary, this is life insurance. Why don't you try calling that who gets the money if you die? And they're like, oh. Anyway, um, they put the text who gets the money if you die against that area of the form and their problems miraculously went away. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, I, it saved them thousands and that's thousands. That's it, right. Of yeah. So uh, I would, you know, any... I would more than happily, any organization that wants to come to me, I would happily, happily say, yeah, I'll work for you on a percentage basis. If you give me $1 for every $10,000 you save, I'll work for you. Have you ever done that? No. <laughs> All right. It's a challenge. She's put a challenge out there to everyone who's listening. Take her up on it. I, I This is an interesting experiment, and I want to know what happens. <laughs> it never, never would. But then right, I, 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 yeah, there we are. That's, that's I, I, Let's talk more forms. about the, the surveys that work book. Like I said, I love this book. Um, this book 
You know, it is uh, like over 345 pages. And I say that not to oh, discourage. No. It sounds so not long. to discourage. Why so long? You wrote it. Not to some discourage. Some of them are cartoons. Honestly, it's some of them are really, pictures. It's really well written. And there's lots of pictures. I say that because it it's there's a lot of great stuff in here. I mean, if we just look at the table of contents for, for a minute, there's a, a section on what is a survey. Um, there's a section on how to establish your goals for the survey, finding your people to answer the survey, writing and testing your questions, testing your questions, building and testing the, the whole thing, the questionnaire, uh, getting people to respond, turning your your data into answers, how to uh, report showing the results to decision makers, uh, and so on. And um, it's 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 got so much in there, but it's also very practical. I, Caroline, um, I recently had a client who was working on a survey, and your book had just come out. And I mean, literally, like it was available for order that day or something. And so I said to him, okay, the first thing I want you to do is go get this book. And he, I'm going to have to get him to write a review because he just loves the book. And he kept, it, it got a little annoying. I'm going to be honest with you because we'd get <laughs> on a call to work on a survey and he'd want to like quote you know, parts of the book, or he'd say, well, you know, in the book, it says that it's like, I couldn't talk because anything I said, he was like, yeah, I just read about that in the book. Yeah, it was the book. So, uh, but I was, I was tickled with that. I thought that was just great. But to me, it also showed, you know, it was so relevant to, there were so many places in the book that were exactly relevant to what he was working on and dealing with and trying to help. Um, this was a different group in his organization that had put the survey together. Um, and it, and, and by the way, he was very successful in, he used the book, he used it to put together his evaluation of the survey and present um, his evaluation of what needed to be changed. And, you know, it, it also really helped him. This is so true. If you have a good book, because then when he, presented his results in the organization about what to do differently. It wasn't just his opinion, right? He could say, well, you know, according to the book, uh, surveys that work, uh, and according to the research and so on. Um, and that was really useful for him. So, uh, I, honestly, I, I can't, I can't say enough about how great the book is. I, I want to focus on, um, two things. Well Hey, what? hey, I just have to say thank you. That was lovely. <laughs> a lovely story. It's, and it's I, I really true. It's you. all and, true. And um, it's, it's very encouraging, you know. And, and I want to thank you for letting me know that story because it's lovely. And I also want to take an opportunity to thank the many people who um, helped me to create the book because I tested this book a lot. I tested a lot of the ideas. I mean, it took me a long time to write the book. And so I, I couldn't really acknowledge everybody because there were just dozens of people who patiently talked to me about how they use surveys, who tried versions of the material in different ways, um, you know, who tested chunks of the text for me in their live surveys and so on. So 
it was really a collective endeavor to try and get that, you know, never mind what the theory might say, what do we really actually do in practice and bring it down to something that, you know, it, it's, I've claimed that it's a practical guide and it's because of all of the help people have given me along the way. And I really wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now here's a few very specific things I want to ask you about. Um, you, you brought up an example just a minute ago about, um, you know, the wording, right. Mm. And how critical that is. And that's something that I think is so important. The exact wording of the question and then matching that wording with the answer choices. Right. And I just find that people, uh, they have a hard time with this, you know? So for instance, you have an example, uh, you have an example screen in which the question is, what did you like uh, most about uh, your visit to whatever it was, right? Um, and then the the possible answers are, uh, 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 that's a fill in the blank. And then it says, is there anything that we could have done better to improve your experience? Yes or no. So, and you talk in the book about what's wrong with that, right? So what's wrong with that? Because that sounds, you know, what did you like most about your visit to our website or to the clinic or whatever it is? And there's a box to fill in. And then is there anything that we could have done better to improve your experience? Yes or no. What's wrong with that, Caroline? Well, I'm I'm definitely I keep meaning to get round to it, but it's just been I haven't with all the book and various other things going on in my life, I haven't actually had the opportunity to do it. But I've been campaigning against yes, no questions for, for many years, but in forms and in surveys like no, yes, no. So I want to get some stickers made that say no, yes, no. They're like, OK, but why on earth, Caroline, why do you dislike yes, no questions so much? And it's because the yes and the no are binary and the world is analog. You know, there's there's so many variations of opinion between yes and no. First of all. What does yes actually mean in the context of this question? What does no actually mean? So one of the things I recommend to people is if you're thinking of doing a yes, no question, when you test it, test that question with yes, comma, and what yes means, and no, comma, and what no means. You know? So yes, there is something that you could do to improve my website. No, there's nothing you could do to improve this website. So we immediately realize that there's not a website on the planet where there's nothing you could do to improve it. There's always some improvement available. Yeah. So that immediately that no option doesn't make a lot of sense. So, so once you start testing the thing with what yes, no, what the yes means and what the no means, that helps you to actually give people better answers. And you might say, well, is that harder to use? You know, isn't that more words? Well, no, it's not more words because that's what the person has to do in their head. There's a cognitive process of the person thinking, oh, there's a yes option here. What did that mean with this question? Oh, is my answer matched with the yes and the question? What's going on? Because if you spell it out for them, they can just think, yeah, that's what I want to say. That. So if you spell it out for them, that makes it better. But more importantly, I recommend very strongly, at least for your initial testing, that you always put 
a further option that is neither yes nor no. And because of the world being more complicated, so um, sometimes I would refer to this as other, you know, there's another option. Sometimes the word other can also be quite exclusionary. So, for example, the classic example of this is a very complex question of people's gender, where if you offer people female, male and other, that makes people who happen not to identify as female or male feel that they're being othered, they're being excluded from the conversation. So in that context, other isn't an appropriate option. You need to think of a way of wording your third option, which is more inclusive and recognises that people who happen not to feel very binary are not weird or other, they just happen to be who they are. So sometimes other isn't an appropriate word, sometimes it's something else, something it's you know, I have my own answer, it's some other way of doing it. But for the purposes of, of normal, many questions, having a, a, a third option, having another option or a something else option or sometimes option, anything that's not just your two yes and no, at least while you're testing it, you can find out what the full richness is of people's actual experience. Um, typically there's good and bad in everything, so just saying, is it good, is it bad, is just not enough nuance for people. So that's why I'm I'm really keen on having a richer set of options. Now, if you test it for a bit and you discover that nobody ever picks that third option, okay, get rid of it. You know, it's you've proved me wrong, you know, that, that you didn't need it. No one ever answered it. Forget it. Get rid of it. But in many, many cases, that having that third option elicits really interesting information. All right, now I have a question for you that I don't know if you're going to like or you're going to hate, okay? <laughs> you're giving me option, yes, I like it, or no, I hate it. Yes, so, that's what yes. I'm asking you. <laughs> okay, um, cool. No, no, but here's a question. The, the infamous question about whether on a liquored scale should it be five items? That you choose from should it be seven what's the best number what's the best options when you have you know agree disagree and so on how big should that scale be should it be zero to ten should it be one to five should it be zero to seven so i have a whole uh i think it's like 15 pages on how many points in a liquid scale yeah, i do <laughs> i do which I was thrilled to see. <laughs> I love this topic. But anyway. So you're just teasing me, aren't you? You're I teasing am. me. I you're am. seeing if you can, how much you can provoke me. So, so there are a number of different answers to this question. And so the long answer that took 15 pages to say is that technically there's a difference between what I call a liquor item, which is a single statement of the form you know, how much did you hate or love Susan's question, Caroline? And then you give me response options where I've got five points from love it through to hate it with a neutral in between. OK, so that, that I call that a liquid item. Now, I call it a liquid item, but unfortunately, many, many people call it a liquid scale. However, strictly speaking, a liquid scale 
is something where you have a bunch of those items and you kind of really need at least three, but typically a usual Likert scale will have around 10. And sometimes I've seen them with as many as 50 or even 100 items. And in a Likert scale, you have a bunch of items and then the person who's answering answers all the items and then you add them all up, you add up all the answers into one number. And it's that number at the end which varies and creates your Likert scale. So once I've got that bit of pedantry out of the way, creating a Likert scale, which is a bunch of Likert items, is not a straightforward matter. I'm not going to, you know, people can read the book for the 13 tasks in creating a Likert scale. Having said that, you also wanted to know, well, how many is the right number of response points to a Likert item? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is people don't really care that much. You know, it's like ah, people care much more about the question that the, the, how much, you know, what do you think about this thing? than they care about the number of response points. Um, our colleagues can get very irritated about this. You know, there'd be very lively discussions where, uh, people have strong views. Well, I think they should only be three points. Well, I've read somewhere they should be 10 points or, uh, you know, 100 points or a very visual analog scale where you mark on a line or all sorts of other uh, ways of doing it. And in the end, the users, the people who respond, as we would call in user experience, we call them users. In my book, I call them people who answer. Um, people aren't that bothered. You know, they're just not bothered. I've seen people survive all sorts of different scales without too much difference. Um, some of the people who've investigated different scale uh, numbers of response points have found there's not a lot of difference. So, so um, I put a flow chart in the book, and it's got one question, and it says, "Is there a stakeholder with a strong opinion about the number of points?" And if the answer to that is yes. And you yourself can count as that stakeholder, by the way, the, you know, you as the reader of the book, you can have a strong opinion and you can go with your own opinion. And that's fine by me. And it, so if someone has a strong opinion, then I say go with that opinion. And I recommend that if they don't have a strong opinion, then try it with five. So, you know, if you have a strong opinion that five is the wrong number of response points, you have my permission to go with whatever you like. Did you enjoy that? That was great. That was great. No, and I had a situation recently where uh, we I did have a stakeholder with a with a strong opinion. And because of that part of your book, I just said, that sounds great. I took uh, yeah. your advice, Caroline. And then test it. You know, did you actually test the survey that did you test the questionnaire? Yes. Yeah. Right. And, and did it matter to the users filling it in? No. There you go. <laughs> It's just not. Oh, come on. It's too practical. We have to be practical. <laughs> well, oh, yeah, I, uh, yeah. so I know I've said it a couple of times. I'm going to say it again. Uh, those of you who are listening, check out both of these books, Surveys That Work. That's the newest one just came out. Um, and then also Forms That Work by Caroline Jarrett, and that's J-A-R-R-E-T-T. -T. And Caroline, when we um, post- Oh, just a second, um, uh, Susan. I have to make sure people know that I co-authored Forms That Work. And, yes, uh, and you did co-author. Yes. Yeah, my co-author, Jerry Gaffney. So 
Um, yes. Forms That Work was a, a co-authored by my friend Jerry Gaffney in Australia. So we need to make yes, sure we don't want to forget. Well. Right. Uh, and when we when we post this podcast episode, I'll write a be writing a blog post about it as well, and and I will put in links to uh, both of those books as well. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, it, it's it's just been so fun to um, you know get get the book out and get people kind of people are saying so many nice things about it, and it's just been a pleasure to uh, have a chance to chat about it. Actually, yeah. So if you if anyone wants to get in touch with Caroline, the best way to reach her is at her company. She has a company called Effort Mark Limited. And again, I will post all this at the blog, but the best way to reach her is effortmark.co.uk if you'd like to reach out to Caroline and take her up on the offer of giving her $1 for every $10,000 that you save. We've we've got a challenge. I want to know if anyone takes you up on that. Caroline, it's been just so great to catch up with you. It's been a really long time since we've talked and I really appreciate your coming on the the podcast. And I hope to really I re I want to see you soon in person. We'll meet up at some conference somewhere. I do hope so. It's been so much fun. Thank you very much for the opportunity. And also thanks, Guthrie, for throwing in some good provocative <laughs> comments and uh, questions as well. So yeah, you know. it's been lovely to have a chance to chat. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank, thank you both so much. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.